Well, I thought I would start this morning with a, with a story. So my first real job out of college is I worked at Borders Group, Inc. So some of you know they, they ran Borders bookstores and Walden bookstores back in the day before they went bankrupt. So the corporate headquarters was right down there off of Ellsworth, and I moved up here right after college to work in public relations, which at the time was like a four-person department. We were a tiny department for this global company. And because it was such a small department, we got to handle all kinds of sensitive conversations taking place within the company, because we did media inquiries. So one of the major sources of angst while I was at Borders was that there were bookstores who were trying to unionize so that they could collectively bargain for better wages and healthcare benefits. So if you've been around the Ann Arbor area for a while, you know the original Borders store. You guys remember that was down where like the new Knight Steakhouse is across from the Michigan Theater? We called that store number one, and store number one was leading this charge. And there was quite a lot of ill will from both sides, both within the company as well as within the community at large here. This was about 10 to 15 years ago. People from Ann Arbor were picketing outside that store in support of the unionizers while executives at the corporate office were fuming. And I knew the, the issue from both sides, and I could sympathize with both sides of it. So I knew the executives, because we were in all the meetings together, and I knew that they were frustrated because they already planned to roll out health care to full-time employees in the next few months, and they felt like a union contract would actually keep those employees from being able to get the health care benefits that they were trying to give to them. And they were frustrated, because they felt like they were trying to increase wages and of course, they're working within a certain framework and borders went bankrupt, so we know that they weren't making a ton of money that they could do that for. But then on the other hand, I had also worked for bookstores. I had worked for B. Dalton and then Borders through high school and through college. And I knew what it was like making $8 an hour or $7.50 an hour with no benefits. And when you're making that kind of money, even the maybe promise of benefits in a few, um, in a few months it's not that helpful. It's really a no-win game for employees. Borders really couldn't pay anywhere near a living wage. And then there was community anger over this issue that was pretty intense. So if you remember, down on the sidewalks, there were these awnings that came out, these black awnings that said borders on them in white. And so people came out there and they took black spray paint and they spray painted over the B so that all of them looked like orders. <laughs> and at the time, I was auditing this history master's class at... U of M, there were maybe 12 of us in this small class. We sit around this round table. And the professor knew that I was taking time off from my corporate job one afternoon a week to come down and be part of this. And so one day she's speaking out and she's speaking out in support of the Borders Union the whole time, you know, just kind of like throwing me shade, yeah. giving me side eye a little bit, kind of like assuming that I was part of this corporate anti-union group. And then she suggested to all the students that they go pick up a book at Shaman Drum which was the indie bookstore downtown. And then she looked right at me and she said, or your place of employment. And I was like, what did I do? You know, I felt so misunderstood. I was like 23, I wasn't making any money. And I was like, I'm, I'm no corporate executive. Well, for our Linton sermon series, this will be relevant. We've been reading the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And in it, he talks about how the seed of hatred is born in situations where we have contact with other people without having fellowship with them. And what he means by this is that when we know of other people, like the minimum wage bookstore employees knew of executives, right? they knew their names, they knew their titles, they'd even had polite encounters with them. 
when we know them, but we don't know them well enough to really understand them to the point of being able to sympathize with their viewpoints, then we're set up for going down a path of hatred and bitterness toward those people. And he says this is true for both the powerful and the less powerful among us. So in his book, Thurman, what he's doing is he's unpacking the effects of prolonged oppression on the souls of the persecuted. That's his main concern. And so he outlines three what he calls hounds of hell. These are three pitfalls for people who've been oppressed long-term. And he says these are fear, self-deception. So Ken talked about that last week, the idea that we can't even be true to ourselves, even in private, because people are oppressed or sometimes deceiving people in public just for survival. So he says fear, self-deception, and then allowing hatred to seep into our minds and to rob us of energy, creativity, and real freedom. So we talked about the last two, and today we're talking about hatred. That's a great sermon topic, isn't it? Hatred. So Thurman presses his point here about the root of hatred being about the lack of true fellowship between human beings, saying that what's really underlying this lack of fellowship between people are power dynamics. And he says when humans can't empathize with one another, often there's a power difference that is so often hidden and yet it's so very present and it affects situations deeply. So from his vantage point in the South, he was writing in the early 20th century, I think he wrote in the 1930s and then added to the book in the 40s. He says, okay, so look, in the South, we have the greatest number of black people and white people living near each other, interacting, and yet the South is the most dangerous place for black people. So interactions themselves, just mingling within society is not enough to foster empathy. And he says there are white people who say that they support black people, who even sacrifice for them, who even share their privilege. But he says that this support evaporates the minute that actual structural system is challenged. Right, so as long as the power dynamics favor the white people, they're fine with including some black people. And it's the underlying power dynamics that prevent people from having genuine empathy because it's not safe for the less powerful or for the oppressed to be able to express what they really need because what they need is for the system to change. And that's when privileged people withdraw their support. You know, I know I certainly, I'm gonna throw this in, it's not in my notes, but I remember thinking that when I was being asked to resign for being gay, that there were people who professed a lot of support for gay marriage and gay ordination, but as soon as the actual power structure was changed, where I was refusing to step down, then they withdrew their support, right? It's the actual structure of the power that feels threatening when that is being asked to be changed. And I think we see a similar thing today with white people saying that they aren't racist. They'll do X, Y, and Z for black people, but the minute that Black Lives Matter protests protesters started talking about changing systems of power, you know, like talking about police accountability and things like that, much of the majority culture balked and started saying things like, no, 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 all lives matter. So I'm going to take this down a little and think about this in a, in a little different concept of life here, different sphere. So let's say you're in management in your job and you can see a need to include more millennials in decision making for the long-term health of the company. And you're talking about it with some of your managerial colleagues and they agree with you and they assure you that they see the wisdom in that and they're giving you all of the verbal yeses to your ideas. But when it means that the actual boomer generation, some of those people actually have to step down from the decision making to make space for the young people, suddenly you find the system slows down. Actions get backlogged. 
to prevent that actual power shift from taking place. And then somehow the millennials never get any real power. I'm not a millennial, just by the by. <laughs> I'm an Xer. <laughs> People, you know, they might ask their opinions of the millennials, but then they won't include them in high-level meetings or they won't ask them to speak at influential industry conferences. Right, so it's all kind of lip service because one group holds the power and is really loath to relinquish it. So I know this dynamic both as a female pastor as well as a gay pastor in the church. Heck, I knew this as a woman in business, in the business world when I worked there. So in the church realm, I would hear things like, I totally support women pastors. Right, that's what like, male leaders would say at a national level of the former denomination I was part of. And yet, there was this complete unwillingness to change the systemic problems that kept women out of leadership to the point that that denomination actually has fewer female pastors now than they did 15 years ago. And I'm talking about that number was like 10. Right? So there's total verbal support, but no willingness to give up power to change oppressive systems. You know, if you have power in a system, you can get major kudos for seeming progressive. You get major kudos, like, yeah, I totally support gay marriage and ordination. I totally support women. I support people of color. Yeah, we need to fight for the poor. I support flex schedules for people with young kids who are working and they're wanting to go see their kids' ball games. Right? We can look like good people willing to share power and fight for those with less power without actually then having to make the sacrifices to make those things work. And I think we see this in companies and organizations across the globe. Right? That dynamic is everywhere. I was just reading an article this last week, maybe some of you saw it in The Atlantic, and it was talking about a lack of diversity here at the University of Michigan. So they're saying, look, U of M, they verbalize inclusion and diversity as their values, and yet they are a majority, like way more than majority white university, and the average household income of the families of the undergrads coming in, this was what was mind-blowing to me, the average household income was like $154,000. And I thought, for, the, like, for a university of 30-something thousand people, that's a lot of money. And they said, look, the average household income in the state of Michigan is $50,000. So why is it that a state university, their average household income is three times the state average? Like, that's pretty mind-blowing talking about some of the class differences. So they're paying lip service to saying that they want diversity of thought and opinion at the college, and yet the system's not changing, right? That's where rubber meets the road. And Thurman says that this very dynamic of the effects of this underlying power differential, he says it actually reveals something for both groups of people, both for the powerful as well as the less powerful. And he says for the powerful, they don't actually realize that they're exhibiting signs of hatred, or at least warning signs of hatred. And he says they don't want to name it as hatred because they don't think of themselves as hateful people. Right? They don't want to think of themselves as homophobic or racist or misogynist or as people who enjoy power and don't want to give it up. Right? These are nice people with good intentions. But Thurman says in order to do some of the things that they do and to justify some of the systems that they are advocating for and that they're advocating to not change, they're actually treating people very poorly. And they can only do that because they don't really understand or really love the people that they're treating that way. And then we don't really empathize with someone or we don't really empathize with a group of people, we're able to put a screen between them and our actions and their need for justice and dignity. And he says that screen is actually hatred. 
That was a little challenging for me at first. I was like, I, I don't know, but I'm trying to hear him say that. He said, no, that's actually hatred. And he says it's hidden and it's unacknowledged. And he says that the only time hatred is acknowledged is if it's given legitimacy, right? When the hatred is spoken of in a way that allows people to think fondly of themselves, right? So I mistreat LGBTQ people because the Bible tells me to. I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm doing it for the sake of the larger church. I'm doing it for society, right? Then they get kudos within a certain sphere. Or when targeting and banning Muslims or any other group is painted as patriotic, Right, when they can tell themselves, look, we have to discriminate against them because, you know, America. And we can hate Muslims openly and we can think of ourselves as good citizens doing what's right. When hatred allows us to think well of ourselves, we can state it openly. But mostly, he says, hatred on the part of the oppressors remains hidden and it's covered by this veneer of friendliness. So I'm female and gay, but I'm also white and American. And so for me, reading Thurman, I found it helpful actually from kind of both sides of the coin in places where I feel like I have privilege and power and places where I feel like I have less privilege and power. So in the parts of my life where I have privilege, I can hear him and do my best to watch myself for a lack of empathy and to try to be aware when I don't actually have friends of a certain demographic, right? It's not cool to say you don't have friends of a certain demographic. But like being really honest with yourself and say, you know, I don't actually know anyone. I don't actually know a Syrian refugee. When I'm not truly in fellowship with someone, I can be honest and remain open-hearted toward other people. As another example, you know, I wasn't as supportive of transgender rights as I am now until I had some transgender friends and actually heard their stories. And I had to admit to myself that I didn't really know trans people. I knew of trans people but I hadn't been safe enough to hear those people's stories. I hadn't been safe enough for them to be able to share with me so that I could empathize. And so as a person of privilege, we have to find a place of humility so that we can even be safe for people to have fellowship with us. And Thurman is right, once you know people, it's difficult to discriminate and to hate because we realize we really are all children of God and each of us has a story. You know, one of my brothers-in-law was against gay marriage until I came out. And I'll never forget, forget being in my sister's kitchen and he was on his way out the door, I think he was going to work and he just looked at me and he said, Emily, it really does change when you know someone who's affected. And he was kind of teary and he gave me a hug and then he walked out the door. And I thought, that's just really sweet. It really does affect people when you know someone personally. So on the powerful side, we need to be humble and we need to recognize that we don't know everyone or everything. We need to embrace humility in the way that Jesus embraced humility, emptying ourselves of power and going and interacting with people who have less power on their terms, right? When Jesus became a human, he emptied himself of the power of his divinity in order to, re to act with us or interact with us on our terms. And he modeled this for us, for his followers. And then on the other side of the coin, Thurman has a warning for the oppressed. So as you know, I've experienced some injustices in my life, both as a woman and as a lesbian. Some of those have been serious and ongoing. And I thought, gosh, you might relate to this. If you've ever been like in a really messy relationship, a breakup, a divorce, if you've ever been mistreated or had somebody use their power against you. And so what Thurman says is that for the powerless, he says, hatred is born of the bitterness 
of enduring injustices over and over and over and over again. It's like those little microaggressions that you experience day in and day out when you're constantly mistreated, when you're the only woman in an executive board meeting and you consistently get left off of all of the emails, when you don't get invited to go out to the sports bar with the other people who are there, you start to resent it. And he says, there's a little danger right in that space. And he's like, it's an understandable feeling. So when I was asked to resign from our former church because I'm gay, my initial response was to cut off contact with anybody associated with that trauma. Right? I needed like a, a psychological and a physical barrier. And I remember my therapist saying this. Um, she actually was like, you know, actually that's a pretty healthy response. She was encouraged by it because I had allowed people to mistreat me for a long time. And she said, you know, I've got this picture. It's like you have to push people off of you. If you're getting beat up and people are actively punching you, you can't go through a healing process until you've actually gotten them up off of you. Right, you have to be safe first, like safety first, pushing them away is good. But I found that the temptation is to allow that pushing away to develop into hatred, right? There's a fine line between meaning healthy boundaries, which I think are good, and then harboring ill will. And I had this internal battle. I'm over two years into it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not still in this place, but I know this battle well. And hatred at that point is tempting. This is like where the real key of Thurman is here. He says, hatred is tempting here because it becomes a validation for selfhood. And what he means is this, when someone abuses you or treats you like a second-class human being, it is empowering to do that. It is empowering to say, you are not right about me, so bugger the F off, I hate you for what you did. Right? It is a way of rejecting the twisted judgment that other people have made about you without even really knowing you. And so he says this, he says, if the oppressed accept this judgment of them, that they're second-class citizens, then the grounds of their self-estimate is destroyed. It, it destroys their self-worth. And their acquiescence becomes an endorsement of the judgment of the environment. Because they're despised, they begin to despise themselves. Like I, if I had just taken a demotion and put off my marriage to Rachel, which people were asking me to do, that would have been me saying, that's all I'm worth. That's all I'm worth. That's what he's saying. And he goes on, he says, if they reject the judgment, if they say, no, you're not right about me, which is a good thing to say, he says, you've got to be careful because hatred then may serve as a device for rebuilding, step by perilous step, the foundation for your own significance. Right, so one way to declare that I'm a human being worthy of love and dignity and respect is to use the hatred of people who hurt me to create my own self-worth, right? It's not the only way, but it's a way of saying I'm a worthy human being because people like you are not. Does that make sense? I'm a worthy human being because people like you are not. And that's where you start to gain the basis of your own self-worth. And he gives a big caution about that. He says, yeah, you've got something there to compare yourself over and against, but you don't want to do that because when we use hatred to build a foundation for our significance, it starts to justify vengeance against your oppressors because we feel self-righteous about our hatred, right? An example, like, fine, you hid $10,000 in a separate bank account so that I couldn't get it in the divorce. 
Well, fine, I feel okay stealing from your wallet every time I take the kids over to your house for a weekend visit. Right? You stole from me, I'll steal from you. Or the company doesn't pay me enough, so yeah, I steal office supplies. Right? This is it on a smaller scale. Thurman says this self-righteous desire for vengeance is just another form of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which Jesus warns simply leads to more violence against other people. It doesn't lead to justice and it really only serves to chip away at our own integrity, right? If I start stealing and I'm justifying it, I'm losing my own integrity. So I wrestled with feelings of hatred, but in the end, I found that forgiveness really was the only thing that could provide true freedom from the people that hurt me. Because if I couldn't forgive the people that hurt me, then my happiness would effectively be tethered to them and to their behavior, right? I needed to find a different source for my self-worth, a source that's not rooted in comparing myself to, you know, those bad people. If I hate them, I'm thinking about them all the time. That robs me of something. And I did that at first, fantasizing that they'd lavishly apologize to me publicly. I needed to recognize that my happiness did not hinge on that happening especially already knowing that most people who scapegoat never apologize, right? So I knew deep down nobody was going to do that, but in hoping for it on some level, I was really only hurting myself. By hating them, I was letting my own contentment and peace depend on the actions of people who had already proven unsafe for me, and there's no justice in that, right? We can't let our happiness depend on the actions of people who have already shown themselves unsafe. And I also couldn't let my happiness depend on my own misbehavior, right? If I sought vengeance against abusers through gossiping or through whatever little power I thought I had, right? And letting vengeance or hatred rule me, the ones who harm me would still be present in my mind, binding me to them in some way. But by forgiving them, I could release them and I could let my happiness depend on God's power to help me forgive. And then my own self-worth could be rooted in the knowledge that I'm a beloved child of God, no matter what other people think about me. And that that was really the only healthy, only empowering way forward to me, is to find my self-worth in that, to find my self-worth in God. And when we release this right to hate, we're able to retain our human dignity, right? That's something that we can control. Just because somebody else behaves hatefully toward us doesn't mean that we have to mirror them and behave the way they do. Right? I'm me. I can have my integrity. You are you. You have control over your own integrity. So I don't want to go too far into Thurman's theological antidote for hatred because his entire last chapter is on love and I don't want to steal Ken's sermon for next week. But I will say this. If there's one startling feature about Christianity, it's our faith's insistence on loving our enemies. And Thurman insists that the ability to have empathy is what enables us to love. We have to have humility to have empathy to be able to love and have fellowship with the other. You know, Rachel and I recently finished a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We find books that we read out loud together, which is a little nerdy, but I highly recommend it. And I'm gonna talk about Bonhoeffer, I think, on Palm Sunday, but we were just chatting about the book as we were debriefing it, and I felt like she said something really key. She said, you know, I think what I'm learning from this book is that anyone can treat their in-groups with kindness. Anybody can treat their in-group with kindness. Even Nazi Germans, even the Nazis brought each other casseroles when they were sick. Right? right? They weren't like these horrible, mean, all, like some of them, they brought each other casseroles when they were sick. 
She said, anybody can treat their in-group with kindness. But Jesus said this in Luke 6, 32 to 36. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expected to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Oh, be merciful just as your father is merciful. You know, so often Christians, we can treat other Christians compassionately, even gallantly. Americans can treat other Americans compassionately. And Jesus says anybody can treat their own well. It's those who treat their outgroups, their enemies. I think outgroup is probably a better understanding of that word. It's those who treat their outgroup as they treat themselves who are doing the true work of God. And that doesn't mean simply being nice to people outside of your tribe, but actually treating them as you treat yourself. So loving our enemies doesn't mean we can't forcefully demand justice for the oppressed and for ourselves, right? It's not this passive thing. And it doesn't mean that we don't fight for systemic changes, but you can do justice minus hate. And you can do justice motivated by love and by a grounding and knowing that we are all beloved children of God and we can do justice creatively, sometimes by creating entirely new systems like we did here at Blue Ocean. Sometimes you have to creatively create something new. So before we do our meditation, I thought I would say just a word here about baptisms because we do baptisms once a year and we do them on Easter and we do them once a year because we bought this inflatable hot tub, some of you guys will remember from last year, that we set up here and fill with water and it's a little bit of a, a to-do. So we do it once a year. And I just want to say that baptism doesn't mean that you 100% accept all of faith. Baptism doesn't mean that you have swallowed Christianity part and parcel. It's a public commitment of an intention to follow Jesus. Right, so if you're on a path of trying to love God, of trying to love your neighbors, of trying to love your enemies, by laying down power, and if you're on a path of saying, I'm committed to standing up for the scapegoats and not scapegoating other people, I'm on a path of trying to learn to connect with a God who is love, whatever that means, and I'm trying to learn, and you're trying to do that with Jesus as your guide in this world, I would encourage you to be baptized. It's a really, really powerful thing to do. Right now, we have three people who are signed up, so you wouldn't be alone. It's not like you'd be the only person up here. And I wanna say we also baptize babies. So I know we've got a couple of babies I think be baptizing and I'm willing to baptize families. Families or couples together. I know last year the Morrises did that. I don't know if they may be down in children's ministry. It was like this really, really beautiful thing to see all three of them get in. So if you'd like to be baptized, talk to me, Ken, one of the other staff members, and there's a sign up on the back table. It'll be beautiful. All right, let's do some guided meditation here. I'm do a little bit extended, which is kind of nice. It's raining. Yeah, just take a minute, settle yourself, take some slow breaths. You can close your eyes if you want to, but you don't have to. People and baby make noises. It doesn't have to be totally silent.
start by picturing a space, either inside or outside, a space that feels comfortable for you, where there's a large translucent veil separating that space into two parts, right? So it's a veil you can see through. Allow your mind to fill out some of the details of the space. Are there trees, furniture? Is it light, is it dark, warm, cold? Look at the ground. What does the ground look like? What are you standing on? And as you lift your head back up, you notice there are some people on the other side of the veil. People you can't quite make out. You might be able to tell what they're doing, you might not. You may or may not intuit who these people are. It's okay if you don't. But the veil represents fear, resentment, mistrust, and hate. Walk up to the veil and place your hand on it. You might be able to even feel the texture of it. And as your hand is on that veil, I'm going to read out some verses from 1 John for us to meditate on. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because God first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also.
Now picture Jesus standing beside you. Spend a moment talking to him or presenting to him anyone that you can think that you have trouble loving. And then spend a moment seeing if he has anything to say to you in that or maybe some comfort to offer. We'll just spend about 30 seconds to a minute. Jesus, we acknowledge that all of us have veils of fear and resentment and mistrust and hatred in our lives and that various people stand on the other side of that for us, whether it's people who have persecuted us and oppressed us or whether it's people that we just don't understand and don't really have empathy for. We ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would remove these veils from our hearts and from our eyes, that you would give us hearts that are able to be open to loving everyone as a beloved child of God, that we would find our self-worth in you, knowing that you have created us and made us, that you love us, you make us whole. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.